the very first. Don't miss that. I want to be the very first to wish you a happy new year. Yes, it's a new year. And I want to be the first to wish you a happy new year. Now, some of you are thinking I've lost my mind. And that might be true, might be possible. Some of you are thinking, doesn't he know we just celebrated Thanksgiving and the new year is a ways off? Oh, yes, I know all of that. And yes, we can say happy new year to each other when January 1st rolls around. But I'm wishing you a happy new year based on the reality that as we follow the calendar of the church, this weekend begins a new year. So it's a happy new year. And I want to be the very first to wish you that happy new year. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is. This is the program where we stretch toward God's high calling. This is the place where we recognize that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we try to encourage each other to have that kind of confidence. Because, you know, when it gets right down to it, we can trust him. The flip side of that is, and we're not going to go down this road too much, but maybe we should sometime. Maybe we should today. But the flip side of that is, can God trust us? Well, we talk about being able to trust God, and that's important. He wants us to trust him, but he also wants to trust us. So we're all about developing faith, confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now, in case you're not aware, I am a pastor, a pastor of a church, a local church in Cape Coral, Florida, Diplomat Wesleyan Church, and we're pleased to bring you these programs. We do this in an attempt to help you stretch toward God, to hear from God, to respond when God speaks to you, and you may hear him speak to you today as, as we have this time together. What I have to say isn't terribly important. What God has to say is ultimately important. So, Listen to what he says. You might hear him say something to you that's totally different than what we're talking about. And that's okay. I think that's fine. God uses all kinds of ways to get our attention. And one of those ways is to say, Happy New Year on a time when most people don't expect it. Well, where do we get this idea that it's a Happy New Year? Well, your church may or may not. Some churches do. Many churches don't. I'm not here to say that one is better than the other. They're just different. But a lot of churches, they tell the story of Jesus by following a regular rhythm through the year. And that starts with the first Sunday of Advent. So this weekend is the beginning of Advent. And so that's why I would wish you a happy new year, because we're starting a new year of telling the story of Jesus. And we tell the story through Advent, the anticipation of his coming, both his birth and his second coming. Both are important in the celebration of Advent. Sometimes people want to forget about his second coming and just think about his first coming because everybody loves a baby. Well, we can't really have one without the other. And so we're going to think about both of those during the season of Advent. Then on Christmas Day begins the season of Christmas. Now, we tend to think Christmas is over with when Christmas Day passes. But as we tell the story of Jesus, it's not. That's the beginning of the season we call Christmas. And it varies by dates and the way people celebrate it. It's followed very quickly by what we call Epiphany. And Epiphany is simply where 
God revealed himself to the Gentiles, to you and to I, to the whole world. Jesus came as the Messiah, the gift to his people, the Jewish people. But the presence of the wise men, the arrival of the Magi who came to find Jesus, demonstrates to all of us that God wants to reveal himself to everyone. Jesus is not an exclusive part of the Jewish faith. No, he came to complete what he started with the covenant of Abraham. And then part of that completion is the arrival of Jesus at his birth, followed by significant events in his life, like the arrival of the wise men who came to Bethlehem looking for the baby Jesus and gave him gifts. Fascinating story. We'll get to that in due course. Well, the story continues to unfold in different years, different churches, emphasize different events in the life of Jesus, but it happens very quickly. Once he's born, he grows up fast because the wise men arrive quickly, and then we get right into other events of Jesus' life, even like right away into his baptism, which came many years later. But it's significant. It's a very important part of the story of Jesus. And then the story continues to unfold, his teaching, the things that he did, things that he said, what people observed, what they learned about him. And then we get into the season of Lent, which is preparation for Holy Week. Remember, this is all the story of Jesus. We're just kind of reminding ourselves of where we're going. The story of Jesus is is now into the period of time where he turns his focus toward Jerusalem, period of Lent, when we prepare for the celebration of Holy Week, when we prepare for the reality that, that Jesus' mission was to come to die for the sins of the world. And the Bible talks very seriously about that, and we take that very seriously, because Jesus died. He became sin for us, because we broke the covenant with God, and God took responsibility for that in the person of Jesus, who became a man born of the human flesh, so he could be one of us. But he didn't live like us. He didn't sin, and yet he took sin on himself to pay that price that was rightfully owed because of covenant and gave himself as a sacrifice for sin. That's what happened on what we call Good Friday. Then we live through Holy Saturday and celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday, which Easter is a big deal. It's the validation of Christian faith. If anybody ever asks you, why do you believe in God? Why do you believe in Jesus? The the one word answer is resurrection. Because anyone who could die and be buried, and on the third day, as the Bible explains it, come back to life, that validates everything. Because that's never been done before and hasn't been done since. Jesus is the only one. So resurrection is very significant. Resurrection is followed by a period of time leading up to Pentecost. Pentecost is when we celebrate the birthday of the church, very significant day in the life of Jesus and the life of the church. Because on the day of Pentecost, that's when our times began. Now, Pentecost was pivotal, and it took place between the Passover time, the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, uh, and, and the period of time that Jesus spent with his men up until the ascension. 
The ascension took place just a little bit before Pentecost. Sometimes we forget about that, but if you want to put it in sequence, it's resurrection. Period of time, Jesus is revealing himself to people as, as resurrected. Then it's ascension where he returns to the Father and says to them, wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the gift of the Holy Spirit is given on Pentecost, significant in the way that unfolds, and it is really the birthday of the people of God, the church as we know it. Now, sure, there were people of God before that time. That's not to diminish that. But it changed with Jesus, or we could say better perhaps, that the people of God and their experience with God was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And so the church was born on Pentecost, and we've been living as the people of God and as part of the church since then. And so that's how we follow the story of Jesus as it unfolds. There are details different times in the way we tell it. And those stories, those details, the stories of Jesus are all included in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So you can go read those and get better familiar with them. But that's essentially the story of Jesus. We follow that through until the completion of Jesus' story. And then we enter another time of year where we tell other stories, sometimes from the Old Testament to help us learn the heritage that we have, sometimes from the New Testament, various emphasized events and ideas through that period of time, which we really think of as as the late spring into summer and then into the fall, leading up again to Advent. So here we are at Advent, the beginning of the church year, the celebration of the coming of Jesus as a baby, celebration of the coming of Jesus as the king, and one day he will return, and all of the wrongs will be made right, and the end of time will have come, and a new age ushered in by his having prepared a place for his people in what we call heaven. So as you think about, and this is what's kind of daunting about Advent, as you think about the coming of Jesus born as a baby, you likely think of that positively. Most of us who have been around our families, we have anticipated the birth of children. Maybe your own children, maybe your friend's children, perhaps as you got older, your children's children, so you were looking forward to a grandchild or two or three or however many. But we understand the eagerness and the interest in the excitement that builds toward the arrival of a baby. So it's not really hard for us to get excited about the coming of Jesus as a baby. As we understand the history of God's people and their expectation and their anticipation of the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah, the Messiah being Jesus, we understand that they were longing for the coming of Messiah because their times were not good. There were troubled times. They were faced by daunting challenges from all kinds of things, just the simple reality of trying to survive to the reality of living under Roman occupation, that wasn't a pleasant thing. And so they were looking forward to Messiah coming. They they even thought some other people who surfaced during that period of time might be the Messiah. They weren't, but they were ready for a Messiah to deliver them, we might say because of the Lord's Prayer, to deliver them from evil. They wanted Messiah to come and deliver them so they could be the people of God that they knew they should be. Well, that was eager. That was anticipation. 
But what about us? When we think now, we're in a similar place. I mean, we have far more advantage because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus than they did. Because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, we have some advantages they didn't. But we're still in a place where we find ourselves anticipating the coming of Messiah. Or maybe I should say, hopefully, we're anticipating the coming of Messiah. Because people have a, an interesting, shall I say, maybe there's another word for it, but at least an interesting relationship with the idea of the second coming of Jesus. And I would like you to think about your concept of that. When you think about the second coming of Jesus, do you have the same kind of eager anticipation that we're pretty sure the people in Jesus' hometown had when they were anticipating the coming of Messiah? Do you have that kind of hope for the second coming of Jesus? Do you have an eager expectation that when he comes, as I frequently say and like to think, he will make all of the wrong things right? So does that make you anticipate with eagerness his coming? Or or perhaps you think differently about it. Perhaps you're not so eager, perhaps you have a little bit of, could we say, trepidation, anxiety, uncertainty, worry, even fear of the second coming of Jesus. It is a fearsome thing to contemplate if, and there's a big if here, if we are not prepared for his coming. A lot of people have been steeped in a certain level of, I'll just use the word fear. There's a lot of words for it, and you heard me use them earlier. But let's just use fear for convenience. Certain level of fear in anticipating the coming of Messiah. Now, I understand that because many of us lived through a time when the churches we were a part of, and that was true for me when I was a kid, and I don't say that as a, as a criticism of the church. I say that as a description of the times because it wasn't one church. It wasn't just my church. It was kind of the understanding of the times and that, that the coming of Jesus was something to be, to be feared and to be warned about and to be cautioned about. And over and over, we would be faced with, um, how should I say, uh, exhortations to be ready, questions, are you sure you're ready today? Those kinds of things. And, and we would hear stories that described what would happen when Jesus suddenly came and some would be taken to be with him, and some other people would be left behind. And we were admonished, don't be left behind. And so it caused, at least in my remembrance, of course I was very young as I, as I remember this, but in my remembrance, I remember some, some really kind of terrifying times. I didn't know how to put that into perspective, uh, because that's just what people talked about. I don't think anybody in my church realized that I was responding that way. They probably would have said something different to me if they had known. I didn't know to ask. A lot of times we don't know to ask. So for some of us, the return of Jesus has kind of a mixed sense. Are we really eager for his coming or are we really not so eager? Well, I've tried to relearn some of that myself and to realize that Really, what, what the Bible talks about is the eager expectation of his coming. What the Bible talks about, particularly in the New Testament, yes, it's a fearsome thing for God to come and judge all of the people of the world for their 
righteous or unrighteous behavior. I get that. But for those of us who follow him and to live our lives in light of the reality of the gospel, those of us who have given allegiance to Jesus, we need to relearn, at least, if, if we haven't, the sense of anticipation and eagerness. Because I think that's what the people of those times, those New Testament times, felt like. They had known Jesus, particularly the ones that knew him personally, and so they had no reason to, to think otherwise except eagerness for his return. And so I want to learn from them, and I want to develop that eagerness too. So that's why I frequently, frequently say, and in my encouragement to myself and others, one day he's going to return and make all the wrongs right. And that, to me, is very good news. It's not so much that I want to live in the, in the swamp of rehearsing all of the wrongs that I have experienced or seen or know about. No, I don't want to, I don't want to get trapped in that. But I do, I do anticipate that one day all of that evil will be taken care of. All of that evil will be crushed. And one day he will make all of the wrongs right, and we are his people, we who follow him will live forever with the Lord. And the Bible gives us quite a description of what that will be like. And so I think that helps me develop both a, a healthy respect for and awe of God's seriousness when it comes to sin. I mean, he was pretty serious if he came in the person of Jesus and died, took on the sin of the world. That's a pretty serious, pretty serious commitment to crushing sin and evil. And if God takes it seriously, then I need to take it seriously. So it, it's, it's an awe-inspiring sort of thing, but it's also an encouragement because I realize that evil is not going to win. Look around, and sometimes you think that evil is. It's not going to win. Never give in to that sense. Evil is crushed. Satan is a defeated foe. You can go all the way back to the early chapters of Genesis. I think it's Genesis chapter 3, where it describes how someday one will come. A man born of men will come to the earth, and he will crush the head of the tempter. And that's good news, because he will. And we need to live in light of that and have eager anticipation. And so, I kind of want to wrap this up as we kind of are setting the framework for the celebration of Advent with, with these words from the end of the book of Revelation. You know, people look at the book of Revelation and they get all fearful and, and alarmed. Really, the overriding message of the book of Revelation is that God's people can relax no matter how bad it gets. And it might get very bad. No matter how bad it gets, God's got it. And we can trust him. And so the end of the book of Revelation ends with two verses. Revelation chapter 22, starting with verse 20. The one who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. So Jesus is the revelation in the book of Revelation, and the one who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. So those are Jesus' words. Surely I am coming soon. And then the writer says, 
Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Or you may have heard, even so, come, Lord Jesus. That's a different English translation says it that way. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And you hear the writer's invitation, eagerness, come. We're ready. And it ends with, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. And you know, while we're waiting, we need that grace. And so the writer extends to us the grace of the Lord Jesus so that we can wait in eager anticipation and readiness for the coming of Jesus. And we can say, even so, come, Lord Jesus, or amen, come, Lord Jesus. That's a good approach to Advent. And we should not get stuck on remembering the arrival of Jesus as a baby. We should expand our understanding, enrich our experience of Advent by remembering it's a celebration and anticipation of the coming of Jesus in all of his power and all of his glory. He said he's coming soon, and we say, come, Lord Jesus. Well, I hope you can orient Advent that way. I think that's important in terms of how we approach and begin this. It's not about getting ready for a family Christmas dinner or presents around a Christmas tree. We can do all of that. I'm not suggesting we not, but it's more than that. It's a recognition that something enormously significant happened in Bethlehem and something enormously significant is about to happen again. We don't know when. We're not told when. Jesus said himself he did not know when. Only the Father knows. But he is coming, and we're ready for him to come. So i got several things today I thought I would encourage us to think about, encourage you to think about. And, and one of the things is a, is a question that I was challenged with a while back, uh, earlier this fall, not, not too long ago. And it ca- it's caused me to think a lot, and, and we at our church are wrestling with it and taking some steps to figure out what it means for us. I think answering this question is probably specific to each local church, but it is a very challenging question. And I would encourage you to write this question down and to think about it very seriously. I'm going to break it down in a couple of ways, but I'm going to give you the whole question right up front so we can have a place to start from. Then we'll talk about it a little bit more in detail. But here's the question. It's kind of long, and, and it has several parts, but I'm pretty sure you can grasp it. So here's the question. What kind of church do God and people trust with extraordinary resources to do impossible things? Let's go over that again. What kind of church do God and people trust with extraordinary resources to do impossible things? Now, I don't know what jumps out at you from that question. A number of things have jumped out at me from that question. I don't pretend that I have them in a perfect order or anything like that. It's just this is the kind of thing that keeps bouncing around in my brain, and pardon me, in my brain, so that I can wrestle with these things and try to come up with answers. And I just want you to think about that as it relates to your church. What kind of church? Now, I don't think that refers to brand name in terms of we have different names on our churches. Ours is a Wesleyan church, Diplomat Wesleyan church. We have 
Methodist churches and various kinds of Methodist and, and words that qualify or describe a certain kind of Methodist. We have Baptist, and the same thing applies there. Number of streams of groups that call themselves one kind of Baptist or another. And we have Episcopalian, we have Anglican, and the list goes on. You could name many, many. Church of God, Church of Christ, all, lots of them. And I don't think that the question is referring to, to that sense. So let's kind of take that off the table at first. I think it's more referring to what are the qualities about a church that that God sees, that people see. We might start with God. What does God see that would cause him to trust your church? Now, that's a, that's a very significant question. You know, we, we, um, we know God wants us to trust him, but we don't often think about, well, what is it that we need to do so that God is sure he can trust us? What kind of church does God trust? That's important. Well, it also says, what kind of church do people trust? Well, that's a little bit of a different question because people look at things differently. I suppose if if we had to get right down to it, uh, we would choose to be a church that God trusts more than a church that people trust. But I don't know that that answer has to be mutually exclusive. They might inform each other. That's one of the intriguing things about this question. What kind of church do God and people trust? And what are the qualities of that church? And so we've been thinking about that, and we're going to think about that some more. One of the things that I have found helpful to think about is, yes, what kind of church? But then the question ends because it talks about impossible things. What kind of church do God and people trust with extraordinary resources to do impossible things. And I've been thinking about that because what are the impossible things that our churches want to do for God? Do we even think about those kinds of things? Do we even dare to dream about those? Because most churches I've been around, in fact, I've never been around a church that did not have a resource challenge. And so we tend to limit our ability to think about those things because we look at what we have in our hands, and, and that keeps us from thinking about what might be possible. We forget that there is a God involved in this. So if you could dream, if your church could dream about impossible things, what might you do? And I, then again, I think this is often, and maybe always, specific to each local church because we all have different opportunities and challenges. And so there are some impossible things that, that our church needs to think about, and we're, we're going to. We are, we've started a little bit, only a little bit. It's not going to be easy during this season where, where there's so many distractions with Advent and Christmas and all of that. But we're starting to think about what are the impossible things because there are things that, that, that right now based on who we are and where we are and what we have, they're impossible for us to do. But if we're dreaming of impossible things, then might God be able to bring extraordinary resources to bear on that? And is it possible? See, this is all the things I'm thinking about, and this is what I want you to think about as you think about church. Is it possible that we don't experience extraordinary resources because we don't attempt to do impossible things. Well, maybe. I'm not a pie in the sky, by and by, God, to say, well, if you put your 
neck out that God is going to rescue you. I don't think that's the case. But I do think that we need to develop a sense of, well, if God has given us this, we can use what we have now to build on to a dream that, that right now isn't possible. But what if God? And so then we answer the question, what kind of church do God and people trust with extraordinary resources to do impossible things? Well, and, and part of that is, ask this question. See, this, this question goes on and on and on and on. You'll, you'll get the idea as you wrestle with it, and I hope you will. It's not something you sit down in five minutes and answer, or two minutes and answer. But, but could God trust your church the way it manages resources now with extraordinary resources? Could people trust you with extraordinary resources? I'll give you an example. I talked to a guy in October, and I brought it up because I was kind of curious to find out if he knew about this. He had been around this idea, and he, he was actually the one that developed the question. And I asked him, had he ever cross, come across people who were so blessed with so many resources that they were reluctant to tithes to their church. And without hesitation, hesitation, he said, yes. He's had people say to him, if I tithed to my church, it would ruin it. And I died a little bit inside when he said that, because that talks about what kind of church we are. And so that's the question that I want to leave you with before we take a break. What kind of church do God and people trust with extraordinary resources to do impossible things? Some of you are going to dismiss this and say, ah, that's just a thought question. Well, it is a thought question, but I think it's got to have some concreteness. And we're going to work on that. I hope your church will too. Well, we've got a number of other things, and this is kind of a mixed bag of things today. I've kind of pulled together. So we'll talk about a number of other things on the other side. But right now, I want you to take a little break and, and uh, maybe think about this question or maybe just relax your brain because you've thought too much. I'm Pastor Rick. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. The Wellness Company's chief medical board designed every supplement and medical protocol with your health in mind. From groundbreaking supplements like the Spike Support Formula to unique care like Freedom from Big Pharma. Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be, with a company that shares your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, 
viruses and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. The buildup of spike proteins is dangerous to your health. Global Healing's foreign protein cleanse detoxes your body, removing the spike proteins, allowing your body to repair from within. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Change in the world one person at a time. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Still a happy new year. I'm glad to greet you on this new year's weekend because it's the beginning of a new church year. It's the beginning of the year where we begin to tell the story of Jesus, starting with the anticipation of his arrival as, a, as his birth in Bethlehem, but also the anticipation of his arrival again when he comes back to get, gather his people and make all the wrongs right. So, We've been talking about that. We've been talking about what kind of church do God and people trust with extraordinary resources to do impossible things. And I hope you'll wrestle with that, you and your church. Um, but that also reminds me that not everybody has found a church. And I want to encourage you, to, if you haven't, to find a church. And one of the reasons I mention that is because it's so very important, and it will be so very important to your spiritual formation. But also because... This is the time of year where it's a little bit easier to find a church because people think about going to church at Christmas time. There are sometimes special events, sometimes concerts, different sorts of things, sometimes not. It depends on the church, depends on the community. But look around, and this is a really good time of year if you're kind of reluctant to go to a church. And, and I understand. I have some of the same challenges when I'm away from my church and, and looking for a church to attend. I have to think about, now, will this church welcome me? Well, I'm pretty sure they all will. I, I know enough about church that I'm not really worried about that. But I think about the kind of welcome I might get or what they might think when I walk through the door. And, and I'm not really worried about that. But it's just kind of a social challenge, shall I say. Just a little bit of a social barrier. And this time of year, it's a little bit easier for that because you may be able to find a church that has a Christmas Eve service. And, and if you're worried that you'll be the only new person there, usually on Christmas Eve, 
But lots of people attend church that don't attend other times, and so you won't be the only unfamiliar face to the people of that church. So plan a strategy. Find a way. Now, I also frequently say to people, don't look for a church that's closest to your house or closest to where you live. Look for a church that's closest to the Bible. Now, I realize it's hard to know that without attending for a while, and it's hard to know that you'll be comfortable in a church without attending for four to eight weeks minimum. You just won't be comfortable after two visits. You go, off, you go to one visit and you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, of course you're going to feel uncomfortable. Any place you go that's unfamiliar and you go for the first time, you feel uncomfortable. Why do you think church should be different? I mean, I hope that people are friendly to you and talk to you and all that kind of stuff, smile at you. But understand, you'll never really feel comfortable until you've been there for several weeks. That's just life. So don't be intimidated by that. But as you're checking into that church and, and exploring, pay attention and find out, does that church teach the Bible? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, most churches would say they teach the Bible. And, and I'm hopeful that's true. Okay, I'm not here, here to say they don't. But we need a way to evaluate that. And so one of the ways you can evaluate that is, does the pastor actually use the Bible in his sermon? Or does he not? Now, you can't always tell that by one sermon, because sometimes a concept is so important that you use one verse to communicate it. Sometimes a concept is important, so you tell the stories of the Bible, and then maybe focus on a key passage from the Bible, so you're not digesting a huge piece of Scripture, you're using a little bit of a bite size. So, so there's different ways that we pastors use the Bible, but the key is, does the Bible come through as a prominent part of that church's teaching? Another aspect of that, and this is also a little bit more difficult to, to grasp, but I think, I think you can do this. I, I really do. I don't think you should be intimidated by, by unfamiliarity. But you want, you want to ask, as you're listening, do they use the Bible? Do they respect the authority of the Bible? So that, and this is a silly example, okay? So just understand, silly example. This is not going to happen when you go to a church. But for example, if the pastor would read from the Ten Commandments, and it says, Thou shalt not steal. And if he were then to look up and be serious and say, Well, that says thou shalt not steal. But sometimes you have to steal to get by. And sometimes stealing is okay. And if this is just a little bit of stealing, then God understands. No, that's not respecting the authority of the Bible. The Bible says, don't steal. It also says, trust God to provide. You don't need to steal for God to provide. So those are, that's a silly, admittedly silly, incomplete, maybe helpful illustration of what I mean. But look for a church that respects the authority of the Bible. So many times people today don't like what God says, and so they want to dismiss it or change it or something, massage it, whatever you want to say. Well, we need to be the people who respect the authority of the Bible. And if God says something we don't want to hear, we need to lean into that to figure out what's going on. Because the problem isn't the Bible. You ready for this? The problem is us. And so we need to make sure we hear what God says. 
we need to make sure we attend a church that we want the pastor to tell us what the Bible says clearly, directly, even if we don't like it. Because we need to know what God says, because God wants to guide our lives so that they are better. God's whole point is to help us have better lives. Now, another thing you may encounter when you go to church this time of year, and maybe not, not all churches do this. It seems in my lifetime an increasing number have adopted this practice compared to what they were many, many years ago when I was just getting started in church ministry. But often churches will use an Advent wreath as part of the celebration of Advent and the anticipation of the coming of Jesus. Now, occasionally, people get a little nervous when churches do things like this. I don't know exactly why. I don't think people are nervous about it like they used to be when I first started using an Advent wreath. And I never had any serious pushback or complaints about it in any of the places that I'd that I used an Advent wreath, and there were more than one that I think I was the one who started the idea of using it. I didn't get any complaints about it. People seem to adopt it and appreciate it. An Advent wreath is, is a simple wreath. It can be elaborate. You can get very expensive ones. You can make one simply uh, on your own, put it on a table, works just fine. But an Advent wreath is a wreath. It's a round wreath that then is made of evergreen materials. Now, sometimes we use artificial stuff. That's fine. They use different kinds of things, but the idea is that it's greenery, Christmas greenery. You get that. And so we make this wreath out of evergreen material. And partially it's because the evergreen reminds us of life everlasting. Because evergreen, in a sense, is evergreen. Okay, you get that. Sorry, bad joke. But we make it out of evergreen. Sometimes it has other things in it. I particularly like it. And, it, and I'm not, you know, hard and fast about this. This is kind of, I like this idea. Many times in, a, in an Advent wreath, people will mix in some holly. And you'll see the red berries and the leaves of the holly tree have a little bit of a thorn on the end of them. And they both are attractive and dress up the wreath. But they also remind us that Jesus wore a crown of thorns, a wreath of thorns. And so the sharpness of the holly reminds us of the coming of Jesus and his willingness to die and go to the cross. And the red of the berries remind us of the blood that was shed to pay the price for our sins. And so there's some symbolism to that. The wreath as a continuous circle is an eternity that God is eternal and lives forever. And one day we will spend eternity with him. So there's lots of connections you can make with the Advent wreath, and people make different ones. So once you have the wreath, then you position four candles on that wreath. And they are at different equal distance places on the circle of the wreath. And they are purple. The way I have done it, and the way I learned it years ago, is those candles are purple except for one. Purple being the color of royalty. Jesus is coming as king. And so I've used purple candles for three of the weeks. And on the fourth week, I use pink. Now, many other traditions, and I've seen this, and I just haven't been willing to adjust to that. I guess I'm, could it be I'm old and stuck in my ways? Oh, surely not. I just, I just learned it one way, and it has meaning for me, and that's the way I've used it in churches, and nobody has complained. And, and to be sure, a lot of these traditions have different expressions, depending on where you are and the people you're involved with. But on the fourth Sunday of Advent, I use a pink candle. Now, the first three weeks, the purple 
color of royalty, coming of Jesus the King. And then why pink? Well, the way I learned it and the way I use it is, pink says to us on the fourth Sunday of Advent that the people who walked in darkness are about to see a great light. And so the pink, the brightening of that candle, demonstrates that light is coming. And when, when dawn breaks, something is different about us. If you've had an illness and you've had a difficult night where you couldn't sleep well, or you've had a crisis and you were kept awake by concerns about the crisis and, and trying to figure out what to do, you know that it's always better when the sun comes up. Me, my best remembrance of that was when we were, were living out west in this country and, and we would go on trips and we had young children and so we would often leave and drive all night. Not just because we wanted to get to our destination, we did, but because, surprise, surprise, children often did better when they could sleep in the car than when they couldn't. And so we figured that it would be easier for us overall to drive all night and to manage our lack of sleep than to have the kids struggling with riding in the car all those hours because it was about an 18-hour drive. So I remember one time in particular, and we did this more than once, but one time in particular, we were driving. We'd been driving all night, and I was really tired, and I noticed that it was getting close to the time for the sun to come up. And I didn't really know exactly what time. I hadn't paid attention to the time the sun would come up. But we were driving east, and I remember watching and thinking, oh, when the sun comes up, I'll feel so much better. And I kept watching, and I kept watching, and I kept watching. And sure enough, the sun did come up. And I felt better. So that's the reason that I use that pink because it's the anticipation of that coming. So you might want to use pink in your Advent wreath. And if your church doesn't use it, there's no reason you can't do it at home. Put it on your table and light it every night or light it on Sundays, whatever you prefer, and have your own Advent celebration using the Advent wreath. And then there's one final candle, and that's that's one taller candle, taller than all of the others, because it goes right in the center of the wreath. And that's the Christ candle. And you probably have seen this. And that Christ candle is lit on Christmas Eve as a recognition that the Savior has come. Christ is born. So that's just a little description of the Advent wreath. And if you want to use that, then go for it. Why not? You can use that in your family. Children would love that. They might take turns lighting the candles, and you can tell them the story. You can help them understand both the anticipation of the birth of Jesus and the anticipation of the coming of Jesus. So it's very important. Now, if you're going to do that, the first week is an emphasis on prophecy and on hope. And so remember to tell them about the prophecies of Jesus and the hope of his coming. And we're going to talk about that a little more specifically in a minute. But before we get to that, I, I want to fill you in on something that, that was so encouraging to me, and it's a completely different subject. So can you shift gears quickly? Of course, we think out loud here on America Out Loud, and I know you don't mind thinking out loud with me. And, and so I want us to think out loud about a totally, totally different subject. But when I learned this, I was so very encouraged, and I'm hopeful that it will be an encouragement to you. I don't know if you follow current events, but some weeks ago, oh, many weeks ago now, months, 
the United States Congress, the House of Representatives, went through a very involved and lengthy process to choose the Speaker of the House. Oh, there was a lot involved in that, and they went back and forth, and people would wring their hands over, what are those guys doing? Can't they get a Speaker chosen? They went through many, many different votes, and, and I thought it was kind of interesting, and I didn't worry about it. I thought, well, that's what it's supposed to be. They're supposed to be up there wrestling with these things and, and hashing them out. I heard people saying, well, can't they just get their act together? Well, that was getting their act together. They had to wrestle with things. How do we expect them to do good things if they don't wrestle with their differences and if they don't exert their influence to try to bring those good things to pass? So I didn't worry about that. I, I just I thought it was kind of amusing, even entertaining. I, I knew that you know, the country would manage if some some urgent thing happened. There, there are mechanisms in place. It, it wasn't a problem. I just thought it was a little over the top that many people in the press and others were just saying bad things because they couldn't get their act together. I think they were just using that that time of sorting things out as a political ploy. So anyway, you may remember that I paid particular attention to it because some of the representatives from Florida were very involved in that, including my representative. And so it was kind of interesting for me to watch. Well, they finally elected a speaker, but then not many months later, they unelected that speaker. You probably remember that too. And people went through this all again. Oh man, what are they doing? Don't they know how to do anything? They can't manage the country. They can't govern. And I thought, give me a break. This is part of the process. This is what goes on. This is how our representative system of government is supposed to work. Let it happen. And, and, and I, maybe I'm wrong about that. I, I, I don't pretend to be an expert, but I just didn't worry about that because I thought that's what needs to happen. Let them wrestle with this. Oftentimes when people wrestle with problems and they do it in good faith, and I'm not sure they always do in Washington, I understand that, but if they do it in good faith, they often come to better conclusions. So let the wrestling begin. I didn't worry about that at all. Well, the last round of speaker tension, shall we say, when they decided to unelect the previous speaker, that mean, meant they had to elect a new speaker. And that went on for a little while, not quite as long as the time before. Long and the short of it, a representative from Louisiana named Mike Johnson was elected speaker of the House. Now, you may remember hearing that. You may not know the name Mike Johnson. If you don't pay attention to this stuff, I understand that. But I received an email a couple of weeks ago from a man who I know a little bit. I'm not trying to be a name dropper or tell you that I have some kind of insider information. He might, but I don't. But anyway, he, I was on an email list that he sent an email out. And he's a retired minister, a guy who has been respected around the world, meeting with presidents and kings and premiers and prime ministers, all those kind of things around the world to talk to them about Christian concept of government and to help them do the right thing. Well, he sends out an email and he says in the email, and this kind of surprised me, he said the member of Congress that he knows best is, wait for it, Mike Johnson. Ding, 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 ding. Well, Mike Johnson is now the speaker of the House of Representatives. Well, interesting, because this pastor knows Mike Johnson better than any other member of Congress. He goes on to say that in the process of this, Mike Johnson had a sense that he was going to be elected speaker. Now, my words, not this pastor's words, it was as though God had been preparing him for that. 
And this pa retired pastor goes on to say that, that Mike Johnson, Representative Mike Johnson, now Speaker of the House Mike Johnson, is a passionate, and in the email he capitalized that word, passionate follower of Jesus. Well, my heart sings when I see things like that, because isn't that good news that someone who is willing to hear the wisdom from God and put it into practice now has such an important responsibility in our country? He's a passionate follower of Jesus. Isn't that really good news? Well, it really is. Well, the, the pastor goes on in his email to, to say that Speaker Johnson is in an impossible situation, and he knows it. It's difficult to navigate all of the interests that are going on in Washington, really impossible. But God has put him there, and we need to pray for him. This pastor says he's the real deal, and we can have confidence in him. He's principled. Well, that's good. You know, we often think people in Washington aren't principled, but he's principled. And yes, he'll probably have to cut deals that some of us may not prefer, but he's in a very hard spot, and he's going to have to do his very best, God being his guide, to get that done. So I want you to take some encouragement that, that God has not abandoned us. He's put third in line to the presidency, a passionate follower of Jesus named Mike Johnson. And as you think of Speaker Johnson, you might pray for him that God who has placed him there will use him in an effective way to, to bring his kingdom to come and his will to be done because it's a very, very difficult spot. Well, I mentioned earlier, as we were talking about Advent, and I want to con conclude with this, that this Sunday becomes the Sunday where we emphasize prophecy. And you know, there's a lot of prophecies from Isaiah and other places pointing to the coming of Jesus. And I don't need to to point them out to you, you've probably heard many of them. In fact, if you've looked into it at all, you know that depending upon how you count them, some people say there are up to 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of Messiah. Some other people say, no, it's more like 270. But no matter how you count them, that's a lot. Then when you take that number and you break it down a little further, it comes out to 60 major prophecies about Jesus the Messiah. Imagine having to fulfill 60 major prophecies, up to 300 total prophecies in one person. Well, some years ago, a man named Peter Stoner wrote a book about the probability that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. Now, if you know anything about probability, and I don't know very much, if you try to figure the probability in 60, it's an impossibly large number. In fact, he broke it down to eight major prophecies and said, what's the possibility that one person could fulfill even eight of the 60 major prophecies or some 300 total prophecies? Well, he said the probability is one in 10 to the 17th. That's a one with 17 zeros. That's a very large number. If somebody offers to give you one to the 17th pennies, take it. I don't know what you'll do with all of them, but you'll be glad you did. Well, let's put that in perspective in numbers that we can understand. Because I'm convinced God wants us to know that Jesus is the Messiah and to have no doubt about it. So think about it this way. And this is the way Peter Stoner helped us think about it. The state of Texas is a very large land mass. And if you were to take 10 to the 17th silver dollars, you would be able to cover the state of Texas 
border to border, north to south, east to west, cover the state of Texas in silver dollars two feet deep. Now, that's a lot of silver dollars. If anybody offers to give you that many silver dollars, take those too. But I don't know how you're going to get them out of Texas. Well, you get the idea. So as we enter this Advent season, as, as you find a church, as you wrestle with some of these ideas in your church, as you use an Advent wreath maybe at your table, I want you to remember that Jesus came to meet you. And I want you to lean into that and receive the grace that he is offering to you because he wants to be the life. He wants to give you life. He wants to make your life more than you ever imagined. Trust him because we can have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I'm Pastor Rick.